Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to raise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. The word of the Lord. We're going to continue our worship by receiving a morning offering. We do that uh, weekly at Waterstone as a way of marking that Jesus is our Lord and that we're thankful for the things he's entrusted to us. If you're a visitor this morning, please don't feel obligated. We just want you to enjoy the morning. Um, Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for the the opportunity to be here this morning to celebrate the fact that Jesus indeed is risen from the dead. Pray that you would help us do that well as we listen to your word. We pray that it would minister to our hearts, challenge us, convict us, move us, shape us, transform us by the power of your spirit. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. You know, most people find uh, graveyards disturbing. I actually find them kind of fascinating. I I like to walk through and read the tombstones and look at the dates. Uh, It reminds me that life is short and that someday I will have one of those that is my own. One of my favorite uh, graveyards to visit is in a little place called Rosita. Rosita was a mining town. 
about 100 miles west of Pueblo, near West Cliff. Our family would go down to uh, a family camp down there, and when we were down there, I would uh, head off to Rosita just to walk among the gravestones and to think a little bit about death. Death is not something we think about much in our day. People used to think about it all the time. I mean, especially when the life expectancy was, you know, in the lower 40s. Because in those days, if you got a fever, that was a scary thing. Kids died from whooping cough and measles, and women died in childbirth. If you made it to your 50th birthday, you had to consider yourself lucky. But for us today, death seems a long ways off. You know, after retirement, after we get the condo in the mountains, after we buy the Lexus, you know, death is somewhere maybe even beyond 80s or 90s. So we don't think about death much. And because we don't think about death much, we don't think much about resurrection. Unless, of course, it's Easter. Well, this morning, I want us to talk a little bit about death, a lot about resurrection, and I want to do it from a graveyard. When we pick the story up, a woman named Mary Magdalene is standing next to the tomb of Jesus. The dawn is just beginning to push back the darkness, and there's a chill in the air. Peter and his friend John, John refers to himself as the disciple that Jesus loved, have come to investigate a rumor. The women have told them that the tomb is empty. And sure enough, they look in and they discover that the body's not there. They have headed back into hiding. But Mary, she can't leave. She stands before that tomb and she is crying. This is not a a, a teary kind of cry. The word that John uses her here is a word that means wailing. She is sobbing. You know those deep, gut-wrenching sobs that come out of us when we lose somebody we love. Those sobs of grief. That's, That's what's going on for her at this moment. Mary's crying. But who is this Mary? You know, modern-day rumors will tell us that, really, Mary was the secret wife of Jesus. Uh-huh. Or, or tradition will say, no, she's actually the prostitute that we're told about in Luke chapter 7 who, who anointed Jesus' feet with her tears and then dried them off with her hair. Hmm. The uh, rock opera, Jesus Christ Superstar, says that Mary uh, was that woman who was caught between her romantic attraction and her religious devotion to Jesus. Now, none of those have any historical basis or any biblical basis at all. But we like to play with our imagination, don't we? But there are some things we do know about Mary. We know that she is from a town called Magdala, which is in Capernaum. We know that she was a woman who Jesus had freed from seven demons. And we know in that day that if you were infested with demons, um, you would often cut yourself, you'd throw yourself into the fire, you'd say inappropriate things, your emotions were uncontrolled. You know what they did with people who were demon-possessed back then? They would either lock you up or cast you out. 
And the truth of the matter is Mary's life had been a wreck, incredibly broken, until she met Jesus. And Jesus had turned her life upside down and gave her freedom from her demons. So I think it's with some certainty we could say Mary loved Jesus. I, I mean, was a committed follower, somebody who was there with him through thick and thin. And right now, she's at his tomb. She decides to take one more look into the tomb. So she bends over. Tombs in those days would have a pretty low interest so they could take this huge rock and roll it in front and seal the tomb. In fact, that rock had been moved back and that had surprised the woman who came to anoint him. But she looks in, and when she looks in this time, the tomb is not empty. In fact, there are, there are two figures inside. John tells us that there are angels, and they're clothed in white. And one is sitting where the feet of Jesus had been, and one where the head of Jesus had been. And Mary's not sure what to do with this. And then they ask her a question. Woman, why are you crying? Now, quite honestly, that's a stupid question. I mean, think about it. Have you ever asked anybody that question in the graveyard? No. Because you know the answer. They're walking among the dead. They're walking among the dead they know. There's, what, that's what people do in graveyards. They wail. They weep. They cry. And, and for Mary, uh, Mary, it's not just a matter that Jesus has been murdered. Uh, um, it's the fact that now they the authorities, either the religious authorities or the Roman authorities have stolen his bodies. It was added insult to injury. She had reason to cry. I think if you take a moment and try to enter into Mary's world at this moment in time, it's helpful. If you did, you would discover a world filled with doubt. I mean, she had heard Jesus talk about resurrection. She had heard him tell his disciples that he was going to go to Jerusalem, he was going to suffer and be killed, and then he was going to be raised. The problem was she just didn't believe it. Not at all. I mean, (laughs) that couldn't happen. In fact, that's why she was at the tomb in the first place. She had taken spices to anoint his body and, and, and more completely prepare it for burial. She had no expectation that Jesus would be raised from the grave. None at all. You know, I, I think sometimes <laughs> we think doubt is the prerogative of the modern-day skeptic. You know, we, we look at people back in 33 AD, you know, illiterate peasants, they, they would have been very gullible, easy for them to, to believe that a man could be raised from the dead. But that's not true. They were just like us, just as skeptical, skeptical as us. <laughs> they didn't believe that for the same reason we don't believe it, because common sense tells you that dead men don't walk out of graveyards. She didn't believe. And not only is her world filled with doubt, but it's filled with despair. I mean, remember how she talks about Jesus. She tells the angels, they've taken my Lord. I mean, Jesus to her wasn't simply a great man or an awesome teacher or an incredible human or a great moral example. No, to her, Jesus was her Lord God come in the flesh, 
the one who had changed her life, the, the one who was going to, to, to make everything right, the one that she had put all her hopes in, the one that was going to make true all her dreams. That's the Jesus that they murdered. Do you know what it's like to have your hopes dashed, your dreams crushed, your heart broken because someone you love has been ripped out of your life? be brokenhearted? Do you know what it's like to be disappointed and discouraged and depressed? We all know that. They've murdered her hope. They've crushed her dreams. And now, and now she's afraid that those demons are going to flood back into her life. No, no wonder she wails. Suddenly, she hears a sound behind her. She turns around, and she sees a figure she thinks is the gardener. John tells us that it's Jesus, but whether it's because the tears in her eyes or because it's dark or he's standing in the shadows or or just because he doesn't look the same, she doesn't recognize him. And then he asks her the same silly question, woman. Why are you crying? That's obviously, he knows the answer, so he's not expecting her to reply. And maybe, just maybe it's not such a silly question. Maybe it's a question that he's using to, to provoke her to think just a bit, to challenge her just a bit. I mean, I mean think about it. I mean, Jesus could have showed up and said, Ta-da! Mary, I'm back! But he doesn't. And when you ask the question why, why are you crying? That, that question why always begs for explanation, always demands a bit of justification. And, and when she asks herself that question, she has to confront her own doubt and her own unbelief. Why are you crying? I think that is a question we need to ask ourselves perhaps more often than we do. Why are we crying? Why are we so disappointed? Why are we so discouraged? Why are we so heartbroken? Why why do we despair? Is it because we believe that this life is all there is? Is it because we can't see the rest of the story? Is it because we understand the now, but we can't uh, hold on to the not yet? Is it because we don't really believe God is good? Is it because we don't really believe that he's in control? Is it because we're not convinced that he's powerful enough to work all things to his purposes and to our good? Is that why we cry? And then Jesus drives the point home. 
he asks her another question. He says, Mary, who are you looking for? And again, he knows. He's trying to get her to think. Who is it you're looking for? Mary, Mary who, who am I to you? Am I really the Lord, the master of creation, the one in charge of the universe, the Lord over all? Mary, have you, have you forgotten who I am? The one who can work miracles, the one who can cast out demons, the one who can heal the sick, the one who can make the lame walk and the blind see, the one who can cast out all the evil, the one who can calm the storms, the one who can free the captive and set the prisoner free, the one who can feed the 5,000, the one who can forgive your sins. Mary, have you forgotten I'm the one who raised Lazarus from the dead? That's who I am, Mary. Remember? But she doesn't get it. <laughs> I mean, she says to Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener, if you, if you just tell me where you put the body, I will go get him. It's like Mary's convinced. She can solve the problem. <laughs> Mary, it's, it's not a problem you can solve. And Mary, it's not a problem you need to solve. And, and so with one word... Jesus turns her world back around. Mary. And suddenly, she understands. He, he's alive. And she calls him Rabboni, which means teacher. And what does a teacher do? He proclaims to you the truth. And he's telling her, here's the truth, Mary. I'm alive. And at that moment, Mary is the first person in the history of the world to see the risen Christ. He's alive. And suddenly her anguish turns to joy, her despair to hope, her doubt becomes faith, her BC becomes AD, before Christ, Anno Domini, from the lowest low to the highest high, because Jesus is alive. So what she do? She, she grabs him. She grabs on for for all she can get, man, and she will not let go. And Jesus finally says, Mary, stop clinging to me. I need to ascend to my father and sit down at his right hand into the position of king. You know what he's saying? He said, Mary, this is not just about you. Mary, this is just not about your grief or your sorrow you're wailing. I'm not just your personal savior. I'm not just your redeemer. There's something, Mary, there's something bigger going on here. There's something cosmic. And I've got an assignment for you. You need to go and you need to tell. And she does. And Mary becomes not only the first woman to see the risen Christ, but the first person to tell the world that Christ is risen, risen indeed, he's alive. So the question is, what do we learn from the experience of Mary? Well, I want to suggest two things this morning. One, we learn that the resurrection gives us 
incredible hope. Now, to see that, you have to understand that the resurrection is not simply the resuscitation of a dead corpse. Uh, look with me at what Timothy Luke Johnson, he's a professor of New Testament at Emory New University. He writes this. He says, if Jesus' resurrection were simply a resuscitation of the body, that would be a divine sleight of hand that was good news for Jesus. But it wouldn't change the existence of anybody else. The resurrection is not a continuation of Jesus' former life, but is his entry into a new mode of existence that is more powerful, more alive than before. It is indeed Jesus' entry into the life of God, his enthronement at the right hand of God, his establishment as Lord. You see, when Jesus is resurrected, he's of a new order. It's like a new dimension breaking into our world. And he becomes for us a glimpse of what is to come. My daughter, Chelsea, decided last year that she wanted to grow a garden. So we made beds and grew a garden. And if you look at that garden today, man, it is dead. It is just covered with snow. It's just cold and dark and empty. But if you wait a few weeks, the snow will be gone. And if you go out there every day, one day you'll go out there and there'll be a little little sprig, just a little, little branch coming out with a little bud on it that's green, that's alive. And, and that gives you this, this glimmer of hope. It tells you about what's coming. Paul talks about Jesus as the first fruits. And that little sprig pointing to the little bud above the dirt is telling you, give me a couple months Man, in this garden, it's just going to bloom and there'll be tomatoes and there'll be peppers and there'll be onions and raspberries and strawberries. It'll just be awesome. In fact, the whole yard will be filled with flowers and bushes and grass and everything will come alive. Jesus' resurrection is telling us one day the world is going to bloom. It's going to become what God intended it to be. It's going to become I mean, imagine that God gave you a vision of what heaven, you know, the new heavens and the new earth, what it would be like for you to be there and see what it was like to have death defeated and sin vanquished and evil put away. Imagine that God gave you a crystal ball tour of what your life might be in the new heavens and the new earth when all your sins and all your mistakes and all your stupid decisions and all your regrets and all your crushed dreams were redeemed. And you got to see what it was like to have the, the crazy depths of your heart's desire fulfilled in ways you couldn't even begin to imagine what it was like to experience eternal life. I mean, that... That would change you. It would make your whole life different. Because it wouldn't matter what kind of loss you experienced. Any kind of loss, because you know what was coming, any kind of loss would be like a millionaire losing a penny. Nothing could compare 
to what's going to come. You have caught a glimpse. Well, well, you see, that's the resurrection. It's not a glimpse given to us by us going there. It's a glimpse given to us by Jesus coming back and showing it, showing us what it's going to be like. Resurrected life. Because the truth is, the day is going to come when death is defeated, when sin is vanquished, when all evil is put asunder. The day is going to come when there's no more sorrow, no more tears, no more grief, and justice is going to roll down. And everything's going to be right. That day's coming. And that's why the resurrection gives us incredible hope. But the second thing it does is the resurrection means for us that Jesus is alive now. I think oftentimes we think about Jesus coming out of the grave and think, oh yeah, he was resurrected back then. And we forget about the fact that that means he's alive at this very moment. Uh, Let's go back to Timothy Luke Johnson one more time. He says the resurrection is the starting point of Christian religion. Jesus didn't found the church by his ministry. The church came into being because of the resurrection. Everything that Christians do, every time they pray to God through Jesus, there's the conviction that Jesus is more powerfully alive and more available to humans now than in his earthly ministry. We don't start with the living Jesus then we're not Christian. He's alive now. And what that means is we can encounter him now. You know, when it comes to this whole resurrection thing, I think for some people, just a little bit of evidence is enough to convince them. They're kind of like John. You know, John gets to the tomb. He looks in. He sees the empty grave clothes. He sees the the thing over Jesus' face neatly folded. He remembered Jesus' words. And what does he... He believes. He believes just based on the evidence. And some people are like that. I, I think a lot more of us are like Mary. That's not enough. The evidence, the empty tomb... The grave clothes, even seeing angels, that's not enough. I mean, we need evidence. Oh, and there's all kinds of evidence. There's the empty tomb and the documents, both biblical and non-biblical, the changed life of the disciples, the establishment of the church, the changed life of people throughout history, all kinds of evidence. But it's not enough. We need something more intimate, something more personal. We need something we can experience. We're like Mary. Like Mary. And the thing is, is because Jesus is alive, we can have that. See, that is the testimony through the ages of the church that scores and scores and scores of people are believers in Jesus because they've experienced him for themselves. That he's alive. They know what it is to experience the reality of his presence and the comfort of his love. They know what it is to have the power of his spirit change them from the inside out. They know what it is to have 
their lives transformed. They wouldn't know what it is to, to experience the reality of Jesus in their lives. That's why they believe. And if that is something that's hard for you to believe, I want to challenge you to ask somebody who loves Jesus if that's their reality. And they will tell you, yeah, he's alive. I know because I've experienced his reality in my life through the power of his spirit. So the resurrection gives us hope and the experience of Jesus. So I, I'm going to leave you with a question, and, and I think it's actually the most important question that you could ask concerning Jesus. And perhaps the most important question in all of life. It's simply this, do you believe Jesus is dead or alive? Because how you answer that question will determine everything else. I liked what Yaroslav Pelikan, a Yale historian, writes. He says, if Christ is raised from the dead, well, then nothing else matters. But if he's not raised from the dead, then really nothing else matters. Because he's the central concern of all of life. Do you believe he is alive or dead? That's the question. And if you believe he's alive, then you have incredible hope and an experience of Jesus. Can I ask you to stand? I want to end the message with a confession. If you believe that Jesus is alive, then I would like you to read the confession with me. Ready? I believe the belief of the women who were the last at the cross and the first at the empty tomb. I believe the first believers and stand on the shoulders of other believers across time and space who have believed, confessed, and taught that God raised Jesus from the dead and that in so doing he vanquished sin, death, and evil. So with believers from around the world and across the ages, I join the Easter chorus. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen.